0: Welcome to the Multiple Sclerosis Association of America's podcast, the three M's of MS, manja, microbiome, and molecules. I'm Alexis Crispino-Klein, Director of Mission Delivery and Grants Management for the Multiple Sclerosis Association of America and your host for today's program. I'm also delighted to introduce our guest and the mastermind behind today's podcast topic, Dr. Andrew Wu. Dr. Wu is in private practice at Santa Monica Neurological Consultants and serves as an Assistant Clinical Professor of Neurology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Listed as one of America's top physicians by the Consumer Research Council of America, Dr. Wu also serves on the Navigating MS International Steering Committee and is a member of the Board of Directors for the Multiple Sclerosis Association of America. We are so excited to have you here today, Dr. Wu, particularly for such a neat podcast. I believe you've even described this as one of your favorite topics to talk about.
1: That is true. But I, when you said mastermind, I'm thinking more mini mind. But thank you for the, uh, thank you for the title. I appreciate it. And my mother, thanks you wholeheartedly. Yes. So uh, I'm Asian. So I like to eat. Everything has to be a food analogy. And, uh, yeah, I, I came up with that little M thing because I like little things going threes and I like to eat. And so I thought, well, what's kind of a catchy title that encompasses things that have to do with food because food is good and food brings people together and food is social. And one thing I found that uh, when when you see patients, patients, you know, sometimes they listen to you, sometimes they don't, but they want to engage. But one thing that happens is oftentimes as patients are listening to things about medications and kind of what they're learning about MS in their body. And we're talking about the immune system and the white cells and the T cells and what happens with MS. Oftentimes the question comes up, okay, 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 I get that. And I'll, I'll think about medications and what they do. And I'll do this and the the blood test. But what should I eat? And what should I do about my lifestyle? Because that, as we all come to learn is very important. Sometimes almost just as important as whatever I tell them about the science of MS. Uh, and you know, the cornerstone of most health things really is diet, exercise and sleep. And for things like MS. Or any other kind of immune condition that is very very critical and i think in in our talk we did just you know not too long ago we find that yes stress uh and the mind-body connection is very important for especially for things like ms and i think we talked about even some of the mri studies from 2010 so that you can literally change your mri spots by stress management which when that paper came out i thought that's crazy you literally can change your mri lesions and inflammation in your brain by stress reduction without any fancy medication or injections or IVs or pills, that, that's unbelievable to literally change your MRI by stress reduction. So to think that, oh, dietary things can actually make make a difference too. So when patients ask me, oh, is there an MS diet or is there something that I could do to empower myself in my lifestyle? I love that. So I, I embrace that. And and then the other thing happens is, well, if you Google search MS diet, guess what? You have over six hundred million hits on things. And is there an actual standard MS diet? And the answer is no, but there are a lot of data out there and it can be very exciting, but also very daunting and terrifying because uh, you can go down many, many rabbit holes. And there are lots of places where they're trying to sell you supplements and take you down things that maybe don't have any real um, data or any scientific value, uh, but they're trying to sell you stuff. So I think it's our job as healthcare practitioners to help patients navigate you know, what actually makes sense, what's practical, and also respecting some patients may have food allergies or food intolerances or foods they don't like. They're like, oh, I don't like spinach, and I don't, I don't like this, and I love chocolate and pizza and, and ice cream, and those are three of our four basic food groups. So, okay, great, but maybe that's not great for your MS. So, you know, you have to kind of look at every individual person and see what works, but also help them navigate, well, what actually might have some data. That could be helpful for their immune system and for their MS. Thank
0: you so much yeah and that's I think that um that introduction was great and you kind of let us right into and touched on a little bit one of my first questions that I had for you um which Is what is the three M's? And you gave us a little bit of an overview, but did you want to describe them each, you know, place by place and how they fall in with the MS disease course?
1: Yeah. So I said the three M's is manja, because we all have to eat something. You can't really sustain your life without eating something. Um, And then manja, and then the microbiome, and then molecules. Because, you know, when I did my little nerdy PhD in, in neuroimmunology, neuroimmunology being, well, how does the brain communicate? with the immune system. And that has a lot to do with not just MS, but other kind of autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and psoriasis and Crohn's disease and asthma and everything. And we find out that, well, all the things we learn in MS also apply to all those other conditions. And then when you look at things like the gut, turns out that not only do we have to eat to sustain ourselves, the things we're learning about the immune system of the gut which is kind of one of the first things, you know, when a, when a, a baby, when it's born and it starts introducing food into itself, that that kind of is this first introduction to like foreign invaders, like how come, you know, how does a baby when it eats, when it has maybe breast milk or formula, how does it not reject that and, and, you know, fight it. And, but it knows that bacteria and virus bad, you know, mother's milk or formula good. How does the immune system know what's good and bad? How does it recognize self non-self, you know, This, you know, applesauce and carrots and mashed up peas, good, but that is bad. So all these things kind of come into play when you have these conditions where, like MS, where, oh, this is the the covering the nerves, the myelin is being attacked. And what, what happens to that signal that gets changed over the years and what things kind of involve that? So one thing we've learned with MS is, well, if you look at the gut bacteria, like we all have, as you probably know, this whole microbiome people throw around this term. well, what is the microbiome? Well, the microbiome is basically the whole community of all your kind of uh, microbes in your gut. So that includes your bacteria, your viruses, uh, your parasites, if you have some. Uh, So bacteria, viruses, uh, fungal elements, your yeast, your molds. And if you have any parasites on a good day, on a bad day, having a bad hair day, you got more parasites. So all those kind of um, microorganisms in your gut that live in a community. Now, some are healthy, some are not healthy, but they live in this kind of symbiotic community in in your gut. And you literally have more of these microorganisms in your gut than you have cells in your body. You have maybe 30 trillion cells in your body, but you have about 39 trillion microorganisms in your gut. So you have more of them in your gut than you have cells in your body. And they play a huge role in not just conditions of autoimmunity like MS and things like I mentioned, you know, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. Crohn's disease, psoriasis, eczema, um, to those, asthma, uh, but also, uh, we find their data in at least animal models for other things, even like that are not classic immune conditions like Alzheimer's, dementia, and Parkinson's disease, and even things in you know, psychiatric conditions. They're looking at things as well, um, like, um, some mood disorders as well, and, and other conditions like diabetes, insulin dependent diabetes too, that you don't think of as classic kind of immune conditions. So it's, it's not just, the classic autoimmune conditions, but other things as well. So what is it specifically I'm talking about with MS patients in their gut? If you look at the bacteria of the patients uh, with MS, they actually have different bacteria than somebody who doesn't have MS. How do we know this? Well, sure, you could take dietary studies of people. Hey, what'd you eat last night? Oh, I had this great uh, flambe or I had a great burrito or I had Japanese food something. You might remember, but you start asking, well, what would you have the day before that, or last week, or the week before that? People aren't really going to remember. So dietary histories are hard. But if you look at the stool, that's where the money is. You actually study the stool. You look at the bacteria. You look at the actual the, the RNA, the DNA of the stool. You stool studies. That's where a lot of labs, like at, at Harvard and other places, um, you can actually look at exactly what bacteria are living in the stool. And so, for like really great studies over the past ten years, a lot of these labs, you can actually find out what bacteria are in this, in the gut of patients with MS, turns out there are a lot of bacteria that are different in patients with MS. For example, Methanobrevibacter smithi, that won't be on the test. Don't need to write it down, but that bacteria is about six or five, seven times higher in patients with MS compared to somebody who doesn't have MS. And that's a very um, uh, common bacteria that's kind of overgrown or overabundant in MS patients. Uh, that, acromantia, um, archaebacteria are much higher in patients with MS compared to patients who don't have MS. Likewise, in MS patients, there, there are some bacteria that are much lower. Um, there's uh, but- butyrosomonas, firmicutes, a group fusobacteria, and others. So I think, okay, this is sounding really kind of nerdy. I'm not going to remember this. What's your point? Well, your bacteria are your main source of short-chain fatty acids. They break down carbohydrates, complex carbohydrates, into what are called short-chain fatty acids, which are the food for your cells in your colon, that type of thing. It's like, okay, I, I kind of get that, but what's your point? Where well, your short-chain fatty acids are anti-inflammatory. It's like, oh, okay, now you're kind of making some sense. Anti-inflammatory, I like that. MS is inflammation. I need the bacteria to break down my food, my carbohydrates, into these short-chain fatty acids, which in turn are anti-inflammatory. So what are short-chain fatty acids? You may have heard of things like um, uh, propionic acid, propionate, acetate or acetic acid, which is literally vinegar, You always hear about, oh, red wine vinegar, apple cider vinegar, all these types of things. And then um, butyrate, butyric acid. Those are three classic short-chain fatty acids. What do they do? These short-chain fatty acids are anti-inflammatory. If you like immunology, that type of thing, what do they do? They actually, um, if you like biochemistry people out there, if you want to nerd out, yes, they bind the histone on uh, on T regulatory cells, and they actually kind of help the uh, upregulate you near know, the promoter region of the histones of T regulatory cells. And if you remember from our, our talk last month with MS, there are T cells that help regulate the immune system. they kind of quiet and decrease in inflammation called T reg or T regulatory cells. So these short-chain fatty acids help those cells, which in turn, quiet down the bad cells that we don't like in MS that cause inflammation. Those are called Th17 cells. So these short-chain fatty acids kind of eventually quiet down the bad inflammation cells called TH17 cells, which are kind of new. They were only discovered in humans in 2007 when your iPhone came out. So you want to get more of these short-chain fatty acids that are produced by the good bacteria in your gut. And, um, and you could also, you know, there are also foods we could talk about that are high in short chain fatty acids, the good kind of carbohydrates and vegetables that give rise to short chain fatty acids. There are also supplements we'll talk about that also give rise to short chain fatty acids. So you're sitting there. Okay. All right. I kind of get it. You're saying if I have MS, I have the wrong kind of bacteria. I have overabundance of the bad bacteria that don't give rise to breaking down things in short chain acid. How do I change that? What can I do? Are there things I could eat? Are there ways that I can kind of get rid of the bad bacteria? And there are lots of things dietary wise, intermittent fasting. We'll talk about supplement wise. There are lots of things to change that microbiome.
0: Thank you so much. And that you know that is a really perfect introduction to our next question that we had, which was there are so many diets out there that suggest they might be potentially helpful for MS, and you know for exactly the reasons that you suggested. And there's ones like the Swank and Walls and vegetarian or vegan intermittent fasting. Do you have any thoughts on what diets or foods would be best or worst or diets that are good to follow or that you might suggest or new research on any diets?
1: Yes. So one of the earliest kind of MS diets that was talked about was way back in the 1950s. So Dr. Swank, who trained at Harvard and then eventually went to uh, Oregon, where he became a very famous star in the Neurology Department in Oregon, he developed what's called the Swank Diet. And again, this is way back in the 1950s, and he kind of observed when his research before he even arrived in oregon was you know in norway there's um a lot of ms kind of inland norway kind of in the middle of the of the donut again a food analogy so in the middle of the, the jelly donut there's lots of ms but on the coast on the edge of the the donut there's not you know where people are like eating a lot of fish so on the coast of norway very little ms but in the middle of the Norway there there's much more ms so he thought oh well what if you know people on the coast are eating a lot of fish is there something about fish and eating foods that are high in polyunsaturated fats. So he felt, well, if you eat healthy diets that are high in polyunsaturated fats, and and kind of avoid things that are bad in the saturated fats, like red meat and butter and cream and, and those kinds of things, then maybe that's good for your diet. So he developed what's called the Swank diet back in the 1950s, and he had his MS patients do that, and he and he found uh, he felt that that would be a healthy diet. Now, certainly, that is a healthy diet in general because. You can imagine, well, if you eat less red meat and butter and ice cream and, and those types of things, you're going to have less chance of developing cholesterol problems and high blood pressure. It's going to be good for your heart. You're going to have less corrosion in your arteries and pipes, and that's going to decrease risk of heart disease and heart attacks and strokes. So that's already, uh, I think, a very good diet for anybody, any human kind of walking around. So by, you know, that was in the 1950s. So before he passed away by 1990, he published in Lancet. Hey, I had these patients, you know, holding this, keeping this swank diet for my, their MS. And yes, over you know, 30, I think 37 or 39 years, these patients had less morbidity and mortality with their MS than patients who didn't follow that diet. Now it didn't prove that it actually helped their MS, but they did have less morti- morbidity and mortality. So it was certainly a healthy diet, at least for heart disease and nothing else. Now over the years, when they looked at Diets, looking at the polyunsaturated fatty acids, <clears throat> primarily omega-3 uh, fatty acids you know, from fish and that type of thing, um, the, the studies were kind of mixed. Uh, some of them were negative studies, some of them were positive uh, studies, and even up until more recently, again, it's kind of mixed. In fact, some of the data were more positive for omega-6 fatty acids and not omega-3s, which is a little bit kind of conflicting. Um, so it's, it's unclear whether... Uh, it helps or not, but there are some other studies looking specifically at omega-3 fatty acids with and without vitamin D that have had some mildly positive things. So there have been some positive as well as some negative studies looking at omega-3 fatty acids specifically. Um, I think in our talk from a little while ago, we there was one study I, I always like to mention in, in Belgium that was, it was actually a PhD study. Like, oh, They followed about um, 1,300 patients over a, a number of years, over 20 years, and they found They asked the question, hey, is there anything that decreases progression of people who already have MS? And they found that, oh, yes, three things independently decrease progression. And that was people who ate fish, drank coffee, and drank alcohol. And so, again, that fish was that component. Then we said, oh, Alexis and I developed a a sardine brandy latte. So, drink up. Tastes disgusting, but uh, let's market it and let's retire early. Yes, we'll have to think of a, a cool name for that. So, I digress. So there is something maybe about omega-3 fatty acids. Obviously fish are very high in that. And if you are vegan or don't like fish or you, you know, that kind of thing, yes, yeah, so you can get um, omega-6 fatty acids. You can get blue-green algae um, is, is a source of, of, of different types of omega fatty acids that are not fish-based, um, that type of thing as well. So what about other things? So the swank diet, um, there may be something to it, but kind of unclear. What about some of the other diets uh, that have been popular? So, um, People say, well, what about cutting out all dairy? Um, that has not been shown to be helpful. Vegan and vegetarian diets have not been shown to be helpful for MS. Um, other diets, I think um, I think the gluten elimination diet has been studied for MS, and that has not been shown to be helpful. Uh, one diet that is popular in other things, these kind of heart-healthy diets. Uh, there's uh, the DASH diet you may have heard of. It's a diet... Uh, so that's kind of against stopping hypertension. So the DASH, D-A-S-H diet. And there's also something kind of uh, with that the Mediterranean diet, they're kind of go hand in hand. They're very similar. And the Mediterranean diet, kind of like it sounds like, oh, if you think of the Mediterranean area, those are very healthy diets that are more for things, a lot of uh, vegetables, fish, olive oil, and nuts, and kind of decrease, not eliminating, but decrease red meat, concentrated sweets, um, and uh, maybe not eliminating dairy, but maybe limiting dairy a little bit. So kind of that kind of Mediterranean diet, those have been shown to be associated with less risk of stroke, heart disease, and Alzheimer's dementia. Now, it's a little bit hard to prove is a cause and effect, but there's certainly an association of less risk of, of, of stroke, heart disease, and Alzheimer's dementia. So that's been studied, and there's a lot of data out there to that effect. And by 2015, turns out that berries have also been associated with less risk of dementia as well. Uh, that was back in 2015 in Chicago, as well as kind of the Framingham study, and, and um, a couple of years later, uh, about, you know, 40% decreased association of developing Alzheimer's dementia. So in addition to Mediterranean diet and the diet against stopping hypertension, berries are added to that whole more fish-based, vegetables, nuts, um, and, and... um and kind of cutting back on red meat, that kind of thing. So the question is, all right, well, what about the Mediterranean diet? Does that have data for MS? And it turns out that there's a little bit of data for that as far as decreasing fatigue. So a study um, by the Mount Sinai group, um, just uh, more recently, I think last year, I believe it was, um, showed a a small study, again, about 30 patients showed a little bit decreased uh, fatigue and disability scores in a small group of patients with 30 patients. A little bit of decreased fatigue scale and um, and disability scores uh, with that. So uh, Mediterranean diet I think is is a good basic diet. I, I like that diet uh, because it's certainly good for heart disease, pretty easy to do, healthy for your heart. Some data with these associations for uh, dementia and you know for cognitive benefit as well. And there's some emerging data in a small group of 30 patients for for fatigue as well. So that's a heart healthy diet and a pretty easy. I think globally healthy diet as kind of a basic diet. Uh, now there's also another diet that gets a lot of uh, press called the Walls diet. So it's W A H L S. Terry Walls is a, a family a practice doctor in Iowa. Around 2000, she herself was diagnosed with MS, and uh, she's very well known. It kind of in, in, uh, in her. World, uh, with MS because she herself as a practicing physician and also diagnosed with MS in 2000 and then she was tried on a few MS medications and was not doing well and and uh, basically lost some mobility and then her journey was such that she tried a few MS medications and took it upon herself to design uh, her own what she called Wall's diet you know again W A H L S and she kind of claimed that by modifying the paleo diet, remember paleo is kind of um, kind of a hunter gatherer diet. So it's based on um, cutting out dairy, cutting out um, you know nuts, and having a lot of very uh, sulfur rich vegetables. A lot of you know two or three colorful fruits and vegetable servings a day. A lot of dark green leafy vegetables, um, meat, uh, six to twelve ounces of meat. Uh, a day, um, and then options of you know bone broth, and seaweed, and and those types of things as well. But cutting out all grain, cutting out dairy, cutting out legumes, cutting out eggs, no nitrate vegetables this is a very strict diet. Uh, she herself, I believe, also I, I believe she does some calorie restriction as well. But she claims that um, after uh, doing that, even after a number of months, that she was able to regain mobility. Um, now, that's the walls diet, and so the walls diet. It's been studied, but again, very small studies, um, one study. Uh, so the, the question is, well, is the Walsh study, the Walsh diet, are there any data out there showing that it has any benefit in MS? And there's, there's yes and no. There are a couple small studies out there showing it might help fatigue a little bit, which I think, you know, again, by cutting out red meat and some of the other kind of fatty foods and concentrated sweets, it kind of makes sense. It's a healthy diet, uh, although it's a little bit restrictive. Uh, What are the studies? Well, one study showed that it did decrease fatigue, but that study was was with six patients. So, again, pretty small study, and that was published. Uh, Another study uh, had about 87 patients with either the Walls diet or uh, the Swank diet, and both showed that there was some decreased fatigue, but there was no other kind of control thing. So, either the Swank or the Walls diet both showed there's decreased fatigue. It didn't show any benefit for walking, um, but again, both groups patients, either the swank or the Walls, both felt better as far as fatigue goes. And then there's another small study of 10 patients published in 2014 that show there's decreased fatigue. So and these were small studies without necessarily a, a control group. So are there data showing that the Walls diet has benefited from FMS? Yes. Were they small studies? Yes. Were there any kind of control thing where people didn't um, do the diet and compared to somebody on the Walls diet? And the answer is no in that sense. So there is some data. Uh, there are data rather, that fatigue can be decreased either th- with a Swank diet or the Walsh diet? And the answer is yes. So the Mediterranean diet, the Swank diet, and the Walsh diet all have data showing some decreased fatigue. Uh, I should also mention what's called the MIND diet, M-I-N-D. And the MIND diet is kind of a combination of the Mediterranean diet with the DASH diet. So it's kind of a, this kind of heart-healthy diet also coming out of Rush University, um, which does a lot of these studies looking, trying to connect the dots between decreasing Alzheimer's dementia risk and having a healthy diet. So again, this is all very heart healthy, stroke prevention kind of thing and looking at cognitive data. And again, it's it's hard to prove causal relation, but certainly there seems to be some kind of connection between uh, that. And that, that was published last year where they actually looked at MS patients doing the MIND diet, which is again, um, you know, fruits and vegetables. And uh, grains you know, a couple times a day, uh, beans at least four times a week, um, and eating um, some poultry a couple times a week, and fish once a week, and really cutting back on red meat, cutting back on dairy, uh, cutting back on sweets. And they actually showed some preservation of MRI volume, so brain shrinkage, that type of thing. And As, as we know, with MS, especially if untreated, the brain shrinks a little bit faster than somebody who doesn't have MS. So anything you do to prevent brain shrinkage is good. So the mind diet does have some data from last year to prevent some brain shrinkage. So all these diets, again, you see this kind of theme that, all right, you talked about the mind diet, you talked about the Mediterranean diet and the, the Walls diet, the swank diet. What do they have in common? Less red meat, less concentrated sweets, maybe a little bit less dairy, uh, but more fish, more vegetables, um, you know, nuts, berries. They all have one underlying theme. So whether you call the walls or the swank or the Mediterranean or Maya, to me, they all have one common denominator. And that is probably more vegetables, you know, more fruits and, you know, a kind of variety of things, nuts, berries and less red meat. Um, maybe a little bit less dairy, definitely less concentrated sweets and, and that type of thing. So to me, that, that's, uh, that's all important and they all have kind of underlying themes that way. Uh, to me, if you look at all the data, what has the most d- data is what's called intermittent fasting. Now, intermittent fasting, there are a couple of different ways to do it. And you may have heard of intermittent fasting because it, it, it was popular for for weight loss. So, you know, Jimmy Kimmel talks about, oh, he did intermittent fasting, lost about twenty five pounds. So, oh, well, he's a celebrity, and you know, other people, Terry Crews, Ben Affleck, um, Hugh Jackman, uh, people, other other celebrities probably do it but don't admit it. And so, there are different ways to do it. You could do it a couple of days per week, like you know a Monday and a Friday or Tuesday, Saturday, where you kind of, you know, calorie restrict. Those two days, you eat less than usual. Women, 500 calories. Men, 700 calories. But then the other five days a week, you kind of eat normally. Uh And you eat healthy, of course, you know. Uh, But to me, what's actually easier is if you actually do it every day, what's called 16-8. And that is every day, you basically, all right, I'll try to eat all my meals within an eight-hour window. So that eight hours you eat, the other 16 hours you don't. So what does that mean? Well, you basically kind of maybe skip breakfast. So maybe you have your, your tea or coffee in the morning. Try not to put you know a pound of sugar in your coffee, right? So you get up in the morning, you don't you have your, your coffee if you drink coffee and that type of thing. And we talked about caffeine because there are data for caffeine as well. So let's say you get up in the morning, you skip breakfast, and you don't eat until noon, but then you eat your lunch, whatever, and you eat all your meals from noon until eight o'clock at night. So that eight-hour window, you eat all your meals and all your little snacks and everything and your treats. But then after eight o'clock at night, you don't eat, and you don't eat anything from eight o'clock at night until noon the next day. So that's 16 hours you don't eat. And that's why they call it 16 eight. Or you can make it, you know, you can make it two to 10, or you can make it any kind of eight-hour window where you're actually eating, and then 16 hours where you don't. What does it do? Well, number one, most people will drop some weight. Number two, if you're borderline diabetic, and your sugar's starting to climb, and your doctor says, you know, you're You're gaining some weight. And uh, your sugar's starting to climb. You're not ready for any kind of diabetes medication, but you got to drop some weight. And you're getting kind of, uh, your sugar's starting to climb. You've got to watch this. It, it can help that. But more importantly for us, it decreases inflammation. You literally change the bacteria in your gut into the good bacteria, which gets back to what we we're talking about before, you know, instead of the nasty methanobrevibacter bacteria, the acromansia, and the and the archaea and the clostridium perfringens B and D type, yes, you're going to get more of the firmicutes. You're going to get the butyricimonas. You're going to get the fusobacteria. You're going to get uh, you know the bacteria that we like that are be producing the short chain fatty acids that are anti-inflammatory. So you're going to shift back to the microbiome bacteria that we do like that decreases inflammation, um, and it literally can do that. And it's strange that this is literally not what you're eating, not supplements, not an MS medication, not people telling you to clean up your room. This is literally just changing the timing of your eating, which is crazy to me that that's, it's that simple. It takes a little discipline, but it's literally just changing the timing of what you're, uh, of your eating, not what you're eating. How do, how do, how does this play out? Well, to me, out of all the diets we just talked about, and I'm laughing a lot and you can stop me if if I need to come up for air. So. How do we know this? Well, this diet actually has both scientific data in the animal model, hardcore immunology. You know, I like to know out about my T cells and my T reg cells, my T seven T cells, my CD four cells, and my microglia. It actually has scientific data on the on you know on the slides on the microscope and two small patient studies. None of the other diets we talked about have that kind of stuff, except for one supplement we'll talk about. So, yes, in 2016, uh, Dr. Longo, Dr. Longo's group at USC um, has some mouse data. So every MS drug out there, you know, if you count all the different brands, we have 22 different MS drugs out there, if you count all the different brands, they all have to jump through the same hoop that, yes, you have to prove this drug works in the EAE model, the experimental allergic encephalomyelitis model, whether it's a mouse or a rodent or a monkey, whatever, you got to prove it works in animals before you try it on any patients. You know? Otherwise, we're not touching it. So in the EAE model, in the mice, they basically didn't say, all right, mouse, uh, we're going to not give you a medication. We're just going to feed you either every other day or, you know, calorie restrict you. And I said, what? You're, you're taking away my cheese. You're, you're what? You're, I can only eat cheese between the hours of 12 and eight. Seriously? Like cheddar, or gouda, like camembert, like borsan, what? Goat cheese? What? You, what? Only, only between 12 and eight between my Netflix. Like so I, I, I just downloaded the Ozark. I mean, how am I going to eat cheese without like after 8 PM? What? So they did that. And so they did that. And guess what? The mice did not get EAE. They did not get inflammation, literally. So they didn't get the CD4 cells, causing the inflammation. They did brain slices, the spinal cord, and the, the brain did not get inflammation. They literally did not get the MS in, in their brains and the spinal cord. They didn't get the inflammation. And the oligodendrocytes, little cells that look like little fried eggs, they were still pumping out myelin, and there was no inflammation. So they didn't get their MS as the regular uh, but they normally would. So it actually by changing their, the timing of the mice eating, they didn't get the inflammation. And boy, these mice, oh, they're so slim. They drop weight. They're eating their cheese by the pool for summertime. Really felt they look great. And so in addition to the mouse model proving that it decreased inflammation, they did a small patient group as well. So they did 60 patients that started on the intermittent fasting and then transitioned to Mediterranean diet for the next six months. And they didn't look at anything hardcore as far as MRI data, relapse rates, or uh, walking speed or disability scores. They looked just quality of life scores. And then those patients, compared to placebo, did have improved quality of life scores. So again, small, 60 patients, but this is published back in 2016. Since then, there was another smaller study um, by Dr., um, uh, uh, doctors at Washington University in St. Louis and Yukon, Connecticut, looking at a small group of 16 patients as well as also um, an animal model uh, kind of feeding the animals every other day. And so the same kind of thing, they found that the animals fed every other day, they increased their lactobacillus, which again, oh, that's one of the bacteria that's high in in probiotics, which we'll talk about. The lactobacillus increased, as well as the patients also had some clinical kind of um, quality of life benefit too. And there's only 16 patients. So to me, intermittent fasting, it actually has the most scientific data, both from an immunology standpoint as well as from a, two small patient groups, 60, 60, patients, and then another um, study in 2018 with 16, 1-6 six patients. So intermittent fasting to me is, is pretty easy to do. Takes a little discipline, but that actually to me has kind of the most immunology data of all the diets we mentioned. You know, the, the uh, you know, the swank, the Mediterranean, the vegan, the walls, and all of that. It actually has the most kind of hardcore immunology data. And plus if you use the Mediterranean as your basis, and then do intermittent fasting on top of that, that to me has a combination of, yeah, it has kind of pick and choose. It's healthy. It's heart healthy. It decreases your risk of cholesterol and that type of thing. The other thing I should mention is that obesity is a big problem in the country, as you probably know. know, So about roughly 42% roughly of the U.S. population is obese. By by 2030, which is less than eight years from now, by 2030, about 50% of the U.S. population will be obese which is a huge epidemic. And as you know, obesity is not just a risk for diabetes, heart disease, stroke, and heart attack. It's also a risk factor for Alzheimer's dementia, literally abdominal girth how tight your belt is. And you know, I love to eat. Obesity is a risk factor for Alzheimer's dementia. It's a risk factor for developing sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is a risk factor for Alzheimer's dementia. So I can't tell you how many, I probably order at least one sleep study a week. You know, I'm, I'm still a general neurologist. I'll see it's as young as you know twelve for epilepsy migraine. I have patients who are hundred. I see a lot of cognitive impaired patients from you know sports concussions, Alzheimer's dementia, yeah, sleep apnea. As people are gaining weight, it's more common. So sleep apnea, gasping, snoring, that type of thing, that is a risk factor for Alzheimer's dementia. So all these things, as far as dietary things, if you could drop some weight, that decreases risk of Alzheimer's dementia. So any MS patient with cognitive issues, you're more forgetful. Your processing speed is a little bit slower. Your kids are making fun of you, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're forgetting this. I just told you that. Yeah. Improving your sleep quality. If you have sleep avenue, that can make a difference. So those are kind of some of the, the dietary things we talk about. So what else besides dietary stuff? There are other things. If you think about, all right, well, dietary stuff, my feeling is, all right, if you use the Mediterranean kind of as a basic kind of foundation and then add intermittent fasting, that me, I think can be very helpful. But then, well, what about supplements? When you Google MS diet, there are millions of supplements. What about other things out there? Well, you hear a lot about vitamin D. You know, any ner- nerdy neurologist out there is going to think, "Oh, you know, we're going to check your vitamin D level." Why? I thought you just want to check my liver and my kidneys and make sure my MS drug is agreeing with my system. Well, you know, since at least about 2009, with Ellen Maury when she was at UCSF, she's at Hopkins now, um, and other people, Asherio as well. Um, it turns out that people have observed when your vitamin D is too low, that might be associated with more relapses, more spots on your MRI scan, more progression, and even more brain shrinkage. So we typically like to look at your vitamin D level. And normal vitamin D levels, if you or I were to walk into a lab, normal levels are 30 to 100, roughly. But it turns out if you have MS, if it's below 50, people actually might have higher likelihood of having more relapses and attacks and progression and spots on the MRI scan. So we typically like to keep levels above 50. So um, so we like to look at vitamin D levels. What else? Dietary salt. So dietary salt seems to be bad for MS. So we like to say, all right, you know, try not to add extra salt to your diet. So a lot of fried foods, a lot of pre- preserved foods, you know, canned foods, frozen foods, you know, processed foods tend to have a lot of extra salt. So try to avoid those if you can. What about other things? Alpha-lipoic acid, which is a short-chain fatty acid. In neurology, we've used alpha-lipoic acid for years because there are some data showing that for other unrelated things, peripheral neuropathy from diabetes, for example, some people with diabetes get some numbness in the feet, which feels like MS numbness. Alpha-lipoic acid has been shown to help a little bit with that numbness in the feet from diabetes neuropathy. But Dennis Bourdette in in Oregon showed that 1,200 milligrams a day of alpha-lipoic acid He looked at 54 patients with secondary progressive MS, and over a two-year period, alpha-lipoic acid, which is literally just over-the-counter supplement, it actually decreased brain shrinkage by 67%. So that's something that, again, short-chain fatty acid, going along with that theme, oh, well, if it's a short-chain fatty acid we just found out and we just talked about, hey, we know that decreases inflammation, that helps the T-reg cells, it kind of quiets down the TH17 cells that we don't like, that's why we're trying to shift our bacteria to produce more short chain fatty acids uh then that's that's over the counter now if you go to like a cvs or right area walgreens they might sell that but it's only in like 100 milligrams like who wants to take 12 of those there are some websites that actually sell 600 milligram capsules of alpha alpha-lipoic acid um other things we talked about probiotics well probiotics there are millions of them out there some of them are pretty inexpensive like 10 15 dry on the shelf and then there are fancy ones, if you're kind of bougie, and they're like, oh, they're like $60, $70 in the refrigerator. You have to like keep them in a lock safe because they're so fancy. And so I, I don't know which ones are the best ones. Um, There have been some that have been published, Um, like Stephanie Tanku, one of our former UCLA residents, did a fellowship at Harvard. Now she's outside. She did a nice study uh, uh, back in 2018 um, looking at uh, VSL3, uh, which is now called VisBiome, and that one's kind of expensive, like $60 so, but she did a very nice immunology study, look at MS patients on that one and uh, and show that, yes, it actually does change the immune system in a good way to be less inflammatory in a small group of MS patients. So there have been some studies now coming out looking at probiotics in MS. Why? Same thing. If you change the bacteria in your gut using probiotics, it favors less inflammation. So you think, all right, well, what is it about probiotics? Well, probiotics are very high. If you look at any label of probiotics, you, you go to any health food store, whether they're dry on the shelf or the fancy expensive ones in the refrigerator, you look at the bottle, there are always two bacteria with many subtypes, lactobacillus and phytobacterium. F I D O phytobacterium, It's kind of old school dog name. I don't think people really name their dogs phyto anymore. That's like that's like very old school, like rover. Like, do you know any do you know any dogs named Phyto or Rover these days? That's very old school. I don't I don't think people name their dogs that.
0: Yeah. I don't think so. But, you know, Rover is that dog fitting app now that people use. So it still oh, exists.
1: That's true. How about, but Fido? No? Fido? Maybe it's too, like, aggressive. Fido. Right.
0: Maybe my next dog.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. Fido, or, or name your dog Phytobacterium. Like, then you'll be, like, really
0: unique. right? And right. I can start a really good conversation about the like, bacteria.
1: Right. Phytobacterium. Here's my dog. Phytobacterium. Don't mess. Step off. Right. Okay. So any, so any, any, probac, any probiotic, it has those two. Two bacteria, but, and there are zillions of subtypes of those. Who knows which types are the best? Because you talk to any GI specialist, they talk about using these probiotics for different inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's disease, also colitis. There's a lot of research in that. I don't know which subtypes are really specific for every individual, every kind of, you know, um, GI condition, whatever, but lactobacillus is in every back, in every probiotic. And there are a lot of data in the EAE model that, yeah, lactobacillus does the same things. It decreases the bad cells we don't like in MS, like the Th1, the Th17 cells, interleukin-17, and it helps the good cells that we do like. Um, So the same kind of things we just talked about as far as the immunology goes, it it helps the good part of the immune system that we like to quiet down things in MS. Um, So so there are data for probiotics. So vitamin D, decreasing extra salts, omega-3 fatty acids from fish, fish oils, you know, that kind of stuff we, we talked about. So I think, you know, fish oils, um, I think might not be a bad idea to consider those. If you don't eat a lot of fish, you could take fish oils. Again, if you think, oh, I can't, I'm vegan. I don't like fish, but yeah. you could take uh, blue green algae or you could take a uh, flaxseed oil. Or those are, those are um, omega um, acid, fatty acid kind of things that are not fish based if you're vegan. And then probiotics, I think is something to consider. And then Tudka. I love talking about tadka. What is tadka? It's T-U-D-C-A, Tudka. Tudka stands for taro deoxycolic acid. Again, not on the test. No extra credit. Don't write it down. Tudka. Tudka, you know, Chinese herbalists love Tudka because they've been talking about it for years because it's very rich in bear bile. So, no, you do not have to wrestle bears for Tudka. Don't be aggressive. We like our friends, the bears, friend of nature, Tudka. So... Why? Because you know Chinese herbalists. You know, I do martial arts. That whole thing and I've heard about tucka for a long time. They feel like, oh, it, it kind of balances your liver qi, your qi, is your internal energy through which the fourteen meridians of acupuncture flow. Your internal energy wax on, wax off. Yes. So, what about tucka? Well, if you balance your liver energy, you know how your liver detoxes. It's like your your sewer system of your body. Your liver detoxifies you. So, yes, taika re kind of balances your your liver. Well. Telecom, it turns out, is actually also um, a bile acid. And it turns out, oh, bile acid, what is that? Well, bile acids are what happens when you break down cholesterol. And so when you break down cholesterol, it breaks it down to bile acids. Well, it turns out bile acids are actually anti-inflammatory. And it turns out that MS patients, and even kids with MS, are actually low in bile acids. And that's interesting. we already turns out that people with MS have different bacteria. It turns out MS patients also are low in bile acids. What does that mean? Well, bile acids help you decrease inflammation. If you're low in that, then you're going to have more inflammation. And taipka is a bile acid, so here's a supplement that's a bile acid that you don't have to wrestle bears for. So, all right, that's off my checklist. Off wrestle bears, I'm going I'm to enjoy my my day today. I don't have to like confront a bear. And then, and Chinese herbalists like it. It's been on the market for a long time. What does it do? Well, actually, it has some some benefits where it'll bind uh, a receptor. In, um, in microglia uh, cells in the brain, and it decreases NOS. It decreases, uh, other things that are kind of inf- inflammatory. So it basically decreases inflammation. And I can just buy it off of Amazon. It's, you know, two month supply. It's like, you know, nine to $12 a month. And there are studies now. Uh, my buddy, Pete Calabresi, we're messed together. He's head of Hopkins on MS neurology, and they're doing studies with Tadka uh, to see if it helps MS patients. Because in the EAE model, again, that M model, it shuts down MS. It's anti-inflammatory. So here's a supplement that's been around for a long time, shows that it shuts down the EAE inflammation MS model, and now they're doing patient studies for it. And it's been out on the market, you know, for other reasons to, you know, help your liver balance and that kind of stuff. So type is an interesting kind of thing, uh, another supplement. What about uh, propionic acid? You know, we talked about these short chain fatty acids, acetic acid, vinegar, propionic acid or propionate, and then butyrate, butyric acid. So propionic acid, um, that's one of the the three big ones, right? And that's kind of the most predominant one of the three short-chain fatty acids in the gut. Again, when bacteria, the good bacteria break down carbohydrates. Um, That was studied in Germany and published, um, I think, in 2020. And that was studied in about 300 patients. Uh, They actually looked at patients up to six years before they started and about three years afterwards. And some of those patients actually did MRI scans as well. And they found that in the, the cohort that they did study out of the 300, they actually had some decreased relapse rate on propionic acid, as well as um, preservation of gray matter volume. So a little bit decreased brain shrinkage rates in the gray matter, which is remember kind of your, your deeper parts of the brain. Uh, so in the caudate and uh, uh, putamen areas of the brain. Um, so there was some kind of, as far as shrinkage benefits as well as relapse rates. And, and, and that's available too. It's a little bit hard to find. There's a, a German uh, distributor, this, which is the only place I could find online, but it's not very expensive. It was about 19 euros, which is about, I think, $22 US or so. Uh, but the propionic acid actually had some data that was published. So that's one of the supplements that actually has both relapse rate reduction, as well as some brain atrophy shrinkage data too. Um, so that that was kind of interesting as a supplement that had data just like the alpha-lipoic acid supplement that actually has some brain shrinkage data, too. So, I mean, again, when you Google MS diet and you have literally 600 million hits, then I think, okay, just show me where there's actual data. And people are not just trying to sell me stuff or, or blogs saying, oh, yeah, I feel better because I did this, you know, whatever chamber. And I did this and I stood in my head and I did this. And my friend told me, it. no, I like to see things that are actually published. And actually have data, hopefully with some controls and, you know, larger number of patients, not just like a couple of patients. Um, Otherwise, you'll just go down these rabbit holes and and end up buying uh, things that really maybe don't hurt you, but really don't help you, that kind of stuff.
0: Thank you. Yeah, no, and that really, that um, you brought us on a really cool timeline just of how research and and our understanding has changed about the 3Ms. And so you kind of touched on a little bit, but I guess just to close, if you do you have any suggestions or feedback for somebody who might just be starting out? Um, They think that this sounds really neat and cool, but like you said, there's a bajillion things on the internet now to go through. How does someone find what's recent and evidence-based and has been practiced? Is there places you'd go or someone you'd talk to or refer to?
1: Right. So the problem is there's no central website that says, here's a, a validated MS diet website. And these are things that actually have data. And here are the data links to the papers and the authorities that are, have like a a title that isn't somebody who's linked to here. Here's a cyber cash, you know, buy my product. And yeah, who's actually not trying to make money off you. Uh, so here's the scientific data that's published in a peer reviewed journal, and they're not trying to sell you something. Unfortunately, that doesn't exist. Um, they're just kind of little mentions here and there. And there are a lot of anecdotal stuff that unfortunately doesn't. So I think, you are know, going to, Websites like the MSAA website, I think are helpful. You know, listening to people like Alexis is helpful. Um, yeah, it's it's just kind of trial and error, unfortunately. Um, there's no centralized thing. And there have been some papers out there kind of reviewing things like, hey, we're going to look at um, the Cochrane data to see what is it about this vitamin or this supplement or this diet. And so there are reviews out there and they all kind of say, hey, yeah, there's some stuff for the walls and Mediterranean, but they're really small. They're like six patients and four controls and this kind of thing. So, yes. There are rumblings of some stuff, and they all could be like, this warrants further research. This warrants further investigation, which is true. So I'm saying the same thing. You know, nothing is proven for MS diet. But to me, intermittent fasting makes sense because there is some scientific immunology data in animals and small groups of patients, 16 and 60. Again, I agree, very small, but there's a lot of data now for Mediterranean diet. In the heart disease, stroke, and Alzheimer's literature, that there may be some kind of um, link there. Again, not totally proven because cause and effect is very hard to prove in those things. But there is, you know, less uh, hazard ratio and, and that type of thing as far as eventually getting a cognitive uh, decline. There is a link there uh, from the statistic epidemiology standpoint. And so I think what well, kind of makes sense because you don't want to you want you want to preserve memory cognition regardless. So there's another added bonus that way. And then when you look at these supplements. There is statistically uh, a link for these things like uh, some of the fish oils, the propionic acid, the alpha lipoic acid as well. Uh, the, the two things I should mention, one is caffeine because they're, you know, this is a Java nation as we know. Right. And so, yeah, there are some data, as I mentioned from that, that uh, Belgian study, uh, as well as you know, some recent studies showing that, Oh, too much caffeine is not good. We knew from about 2012, 2014, that, uh, drinking some coffee, you know, you know, one to three cups a day is probably okay. It decreases mortality, um, you know, by about 8% if you're having at least a cup a day. Uh, so it decreases mortality, like three to five is probably okay. A study came out over the summer that if you're drinking more than six cups a day, it actually is not good and it actually could increase risk of dementia by about 53%. So if you're drinking more than six cups a coffee a day, not good, cut back. So do not drink more than six and you it could be affecting your sleep as well. So, some caffeine is probably okay and probably beneficial. Again, nothing to do with MS except for that one Belgian study I talked about. Um, But in general, caffeine is probably okay and probably cognitively, you know, or at least mortality-wise, there are some data that is good for caffeine. The other thing I talk about is berries. This has nothing to do with MS, but it's my own kind of thing that I I love because I love berries. And you always hear about all berries, berries, berries. What is it about berries? Well, in two thousand April two thousand twelve, paper came out about Parkinson's disease and it showed that oh 120,000 patients those that ate berries twice a week decreased risk of getting Parkinson's what berries twice a week that's easy a couple handfuls of berries on a Tuesday and a Friday decreased Parkinson's by about 40 percent I'm going to tell all my Parkinson's patients and their kids and their neighbors and their accountant and their bookie and you know I'm going to tell everybody that that's great that's easy to do so and I said well that's has got to be a class effect. Berries, you know, and we'll talk about antioxidants and, and, and and flavonoids and something. And that has nothing to do with berries or the dopamine receptor or the, or the, you know, the synuclein gene or the Parkin gene. It's got to be a class effect of something biochemical, maybe antioxidant, maybe mitochondrial or the AMPK receptor or the mTOR receptor, something, you know, metabolically or catabolic. Why wouldn't it be true for other degeneration like? Alzheimer's dementia, or or the MS, my MS patients, or, you know, other kind of degeneration. And then sure enough, three years later, same group, you know, Western University found that, oh, berries also seem to be linked with decreased risk of Alzheimer's dementia by about 39, 40%. And then in 2020, the big Framingham data set that's been out there forever since the 1970s in Massachusetts, they found that, oh yeah, about 40% decreased association of Alzheimer's dementia with berries. So here, you know, berries in Alzheimer's. And that has nothing to do with the presenilin gene or acetylcholine receptor or glutamate receptors in Alzheimer's too. So I thought, all right, well, berries and Parkinson's, berries in Alzheimer's, why wouldn't it be true for MS? So again, no data whatsoever for berries in MS, but I'm thinking, all right, what is it about berries? So berries... Uh, as you know, are the superfood and the antioxidants. What is you know about berries? So berries, when you talk about uh, polyphenols, you know the polyphenols are uh, you know the brightly colored uh, micronutrients and vegetables and fruits. So there are a million types of polyphenols. Um, there are the you know the, the flavonoids. It's kind of a big category, but they're also like the still beans. They're high in red wine. There are the curcumins and, uh, which were big. And, oh, it doesn't that, you know, cure Alzheimer's. And that's like coriander and Indian fluids oven. And those trials failed. I actually had some patients of those trials years ago for Alzheimer's didn't work, uh, but it's still interesting. Uh, they're tannins, which are polyphenols that are high in like, uh, tea and grape skins, um, and other things like that. Um, but if you look at the, and the flavonoids, which is a big group, uh, they're the flavones, uh, the isoflavones, the flavoflaves, all these types of things. But then under the flavonoids, um, my favorite group is the anthocyanins. So within the flavonoids, the anthocyanins, they're the ones under which berries fall under. So the anthocyanins um, are a lot of these kind of purple foods. So one of the highest uh, concentration foods of anthocyanins is uh, a lot of the purple foods like uh, blue corn. So in LA, of course, a lot of great Mexican food, salsa, guacamole and stuff. And so if you need chips, I reach for the blue corn chips. And if you like popcorn, I have fallen in love with these Amish country midnight blue. If you like popcorn, I was eating popcorn one day and I'm thinking, what is this popcorn? My wife had made it. And I think this popcorn is not like regular popcorn. This is like stealth popcorn. What is this? And the kernels were kind of bluish when you pop them. And it was not popcorn. It was Amish country Midnight Blue. So I implore you, everyone listening, go get Amish Country Midnight Blue. It is the best freaking popcorn I've ever had in my life. So if you like popcorn, you pop it yourself. It's like better than any popcorn I've ever had. If I go to a movie there, I'm like, eh, no, I don't think so. I, am like, I've become a popcorn shop. I didn't know I liked popcorn that much. And I had this popcorn. So literally, you know, the kernels are kind of bluish purple. It just tastes better than regular popcorn, just like blue corn chips. Yeah. I like them probably better than regular corn chips for chips, right? So, so the blue corn is very high in anthocyanins. What other purple foods are really high in, in anthocyanins? So blue corn is, is one of the highest number two on the list is eggplants. So. Uh, eggplant, you know, grilled eggplant now, baba Ganoush, which I love, doesn't have the skin, so it's not so you gotta have the, the actual eggplant, grilled eggplant, eggplant, parmesan, that kind of stuff. Number three on this, blueberries, love blueberries, love blueberries, right and now all the other berries too. So, you know, goji berries, uh, blackberries, boysenberries, the Brazilian acai berries, right, bungia, all right, so those, and then strawberries as well. So, all the berries, you know, blueberries, if you had to pick one berry. I'm very partial to blueberries, you know, blueberries, but, but, you know, any of the berries. So those are all those kind of profiles. People ask about, well, what about beets? Beets are kind of that color, but they're not that high in anthocyanins. They're, they're, they're that color from other things, but not anthocyanins. So to me, again, not proven in MS, no data in MS for anthocyanins. It's just, I'm just, I just love that popcorn. And I should probably be getting some kind of residual from the Amish country, midnight blue people listen, Amish country, midnight blue. Um, But I get nothing from them. I've never heard from them for years. I, I'm sure their sales are, are due to me, really. really? But uh, but it's just great popcorn if you like popcorn. I digress. So so that, that's my thing about the um, the, the anthocyanins and the, the blue food. So to summarize, what would I recommend if someone were walk in? So yes, eat healthy. You know, Don't overeat. If you want to try the intermittent fasting, yes, you may drop a couple pounds. But there are data for decreasing inflammation. So use Mediterranean diet of a foundation because, yeah, you don't want to eat too many concentrated sweets and you don't. Know, you know, red meat, sure. A little bit, but pretty cut back. The other thing about red meat is there's a crazy study in uh 2015 out of Columbia, Columbia university, not the country. And it shows that just eating fish like three to four ounces a week already decreased brain shrinkage by about five years. I think really fish, like, I mean, you put three ounces of salmon in your palm, you can like slap it on somebody's forehead. Like that's not a lot of fish, like three or four ounces a week or by cutting red meat out. That is, I mean, and plus your friends walking around, what's that on your forehead? Um, that's three ounces of salmon. I'm saving my brain atrophy. Like five years of brain shrinkage by eating three ounces of salmon, and I will walk around with like three ounces of salmon on my forehead. That that'd be a good look for you, by the way. Yeah. So um, so people can say Alexis's hair is pulled back. I could just basically check out the visual and they, you know, I might have to make a meme. You know, like like three ounces of. Salmon on Alexis's forehead with her hair pulled back. It'd be a good look for you. We need to put that on the uh, MSA website. Like Alexis with a, a salmon three ounces, like on her forehead. But that,
0: that'll be the covers. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Right for April would be Salmon Forehead Month. I think we do it. So three di- So again, Mediterranean diet as kind of a basis. Maybe considering intermittent fasting and then other things. Yes, cut back on extra salt. So if you're at the Texas State Fair, try to hold off on that fried butter. I know it's extra tasty, hold off on the fried butter, go for something else this year, fried Twinkies, try to hold off. And then, yes, vitamin D, take vitamin D, keep your levels above 50, try to eat, oh, I didn't mention the short-chain fatty acid foods. So there are foods that are high in short-chain fatty acids. Some of them are like your basic starches, like oats and barley, lentils, those are good. Uh, The pectins, pectins, like your pectoralis, you know, blah, blah, blah. So pectins are um, the starchy foods, like apples, nectarines, um, um those kind of carrots are very kind of the, the kind of grainy things so pectins are high in short-chain fatty acids naturally and then your oligosaccharides, and inulins and that's like your garlic your onions your asparagus your leeks your sunchokes sunchokes are the same thing as jerusalem artichokes uh and bananas actually as well so those are all foods that are high in short-chain fatty acids so yes you don't have to take supplements if you're, you know i'm not in supplements i just want to eat healthy those vegetables are all complex carbohydrates, those are all natural sources of short-chain fatty acids that your bacteria are more likely to you know, break down into short-chain fatty acids. So eating those kinds of things, uh, and then if you are interested in supplements and other things in addition to eating a basic Mediterranean diet in an intermittent fast fashion, then yes, maybe consider some caffeine, maybe consider alpha lipoic acid, the studies with, with uh, 1,200 milligrams a day, maybe going to this German website, uh, it's under a propionic acid, not propionate. Um, so that was studied again and published last year, uh, and and had, like, as I mentioned, relapse rate data and and um, some brain atrophy data. Um, and then uh, pro- probiotics again. Did you spend the money for refrigerated versus dry? I don't know, you know, but maybe maybe the dry is enough. I don't know, but they all contain lactobacillus and phytobacteria. There oh, sorry. Ah, I guess there is a phyto in the background. Did you hear that? Yeah. Okay. And then Tudka tutka uh, you know the the supplement and um and i think those things are important and then of course in addition to all the dietary stuff um you know mindfulness relaxation exercise is key so you know when patients come into my office i don't say um you're my patient now and you must follow my ms diet you must do what i say no i don't do that i say look What do you like? What do you not like? Are you vegan? Are you gluten free? Do you have intelligence? No, everybody's different and I respect that. So you got to kind of engage your patient. You got to vibe with them. I don't want to force you to do stuff you're not going to do because nobody likes to be told what to do. So you got to, you got to work with what you have, right? But. If you want to know what data are out there and, and, and you need help navigating those 600 million hits on MS diet, then sure. I'll, I'll babble as much as you want me to babble because I, I have opinions and I, I like food like you, but knowing that, yeah, you could go overboard. There are a lot of rabbit holes that you could fall into. Um, you know, I, I can help you with that. So um, there, there are some resources out there, but to your point, there's not one central trustworthy academic website saying hey here are the things you should do here are the things you should avoid that that's unfortunate
0: oh i mean do is that was a lot of information and we're so i'm appreciated sorry did
1: you say cheese whiz you. did you just say I, cheese whiz
0: <laughs> Ears up <laughs> no you uh that was just such great information It was so fun that you had me cracking up in the background so i hope that that Um, everybody gets to enjoy it and and chuckle the same way that we did while we're learning. Well, again,
1: As long as people are eating enough chocolate and then you can avoid going to the dentist. (laughs) Alexis, how's that molar feel? How's school going today? People can't see that. I actually virtually have just done a a root canal on Alexis um, through the power of virtual dentistry on my other degree. I've just uh, given Alexis too much chocolate and uh, I just had to perform a little um, uh, root canal. So, yeah, it's there grown. we go. I have too
0: many sweets, but...
1: <laughs> so avoid, our point, our take-home message is have chocolate or sweets, but not too much.
0: Oh, that is just a wonderful takeaway note for us. We really appreciate your expertise and you and you spending time again with us. And um, what a great compliment to our, our pod or our web-based program we did the other month too. I bet that these would be good, two good partners to, to watch together. Um, and so, do you have any other closing notes for us? You can
1: include them if you'd like. Oh, uh, so, so, food should be a joy, you know. With anything, whether it's a mess or any other condition, you gotta find joy every day. Because look, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, and if if food could be a comfort, not a chore, not a huge decision tree, you know, if a snack brings you joy, a couple nuts or a little treat, you know, you don't have to cut out all your joy. I mean, if if joy. I find food to be a joy, even if it's a small joy, you got to find joy every day in your life. So I want to, you know, bring sexy back, bring food, joy back. That's, that's what we got to do. That'll be our motto. Bring food, joy back. That's what we got to do.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wu. And, And this concludes our podcast, the three Ms of MS, manja microbiome and molecules. On behalf of MSAA, I would like to thank Dr. Wu once again for his helpful and wonderful knowledge and insight on this topic. I'd also like to thank Gradwell House Recording for hosting us today and producing the program. Please know this podcast, along with additional information on multiple sclerosis, can be found on our website at mymsaa.org. Once again, thank you for listening and... Beautiful closing. Thank
1: you. <laughs> so real. So real. My honor.